On this edition of the podcast, we talk about something dear to and troubling to my heart. I, When I speak of my heart, I being Milt Rosenberg, for whom this podcast is named, I'm talking as a uh, former professor in various institutions for a long time at the University of Chicago. My two guests are equally interested in education, not only higher education, but preparatory education. They are both old friends, in fact. The one uh, is Herb Wahlberg, who uh, is a distinguished educational researcher. These days, he is more or less located at the Hoover Institution as a major fellow. And Joseph Bast, who has been with us on this series before, he the chairman or the director of a very important think tank, uh, a libertarian think tank, basically one might call it, mm-hmm. namely the Heartland Institute in Chicago. Gentlemen, good evening and welcome. Good, good evening. evening. Thank now, you. you prove that you're both here, which gives me a chance now <laughs> to do a peroration that may run four or five minutes <laughs> <right>. before we <laughs> begin, fine. or rather before Set I give you stage. a chance to begin. But it comes basically down to this. As a uh, tenured uh, and by now uh, retired professor at a major American university, and indeed earlier I taught at other American universities, including uh, Yale and Dartmouth, uh, I found that every five or six years you've got a sort of a JND. Now I'm using a psychological term, just noticeable difference downward in terms of what the entering students knew and what they were capable of in terms of intellectual performance, what they knew in terms of information, in terms of cultural literacy, so to speak, in E.D. Hirsch's term, and what they were capable of in terms of writing and using of the language. It kept sinking slowly and slowly and slowly, but the curve was always downwards. Uh, Which brings to mind, and I turn directly to Herb Wahlberg on this, we're here basically to talk about American education, what's wrong with it, and what could be rectified. And you've done a major book, the two of you together as co-authors, in case you've forgotten, titled Rewards, How to Use Rewards to Help Children Learn and Why Teachers Don't Use Them Well, by Herbert J. Wahlberg and Joseph L. Bast. Um, And what this leads to then is, to begin with, to set the stage, the question of how do we do as a nation in educational attainment? They've been collecting data on that for years and years. I remember 15 or 20 years ago, America, though it spends more on education per individual student than any other country in the world, shows at the most middleish performance attainment compared to places that spend much less. What's the current data, Herb? Well, what you said, uh, Milt, uh, about 20 years ago is still true today. And what is more frightening is that uh, we have either stayed the same or declined somewhat over the years. But uh, what is uh, very disturbing is that other countries have improved a lot. And to name two of them, the two biggest countries in the world, India and China, uh, through the use of technology and their recognition of the importance of education for uh, industrial development and economic development and the fact that they have so many students uh, means that uh, we're falling behind relative to other countries. And, of course, this is exceedingly important because we're losing, to some extent, some of the higher-level jobs that require uh, more expertise, uh, having a bachelor's degree and knowing science and mathematics and other subjects. So it's an extremely serious matter for our country. It is a general finding, Joe Bast, is it not, 
acclaimed and endorsed by many economists and people in related disciplines that there's a correlation between educational attainment and uh, uh, economic success, whether in individual lives but also for total societies. That's absolutely right, yeah, and it's been studied in depth. So we can compare the GDP between countries, personal income, uh, even levels of happiness and satisfaction, and they're all very closely correlated to educational attainment. So when somebody is well-educated and can intelligently then choose values and objectives and careers that are fulfilling for them, uh, they're going to live happier lives. And K-12 education plays a key role in that. However one says it's a correlation between national wealth and uh, economic success and educational attainment, correlation, as we learn, it's a cliche, does not mean causation. Is it possible that... uh, the more successful a society is economically, the better it will educate, rather than the better it educates, the more successful it will be as a society. If there was a correlation between how much you spend and how good the education is, then you might imagine that the correlation goes in that direction. But there is no correlation that way. So schools that spend less actually achieve as well or even better than a lot of schools that spend a lot of money. So I think the causation is pretty clear that that good education leads to economic success. Uh, we see that too. Uh, the lack of correlation, lack of correlation, sometimes. With, and this is one of the features in the later parts of the book that uh, private schools do so much better than public schools. Uh, one of the tragedies I just read in the paper today that uh, the archdiocese, uh, the Catholic archdiocese of the city, is closing six more schools, and uh, several years ago they closed twenty of them. And uh, the tragedy of that is, and I, I'm not Catholic, but uh, they provide a superior education in terms of the test scores and the standard subjects at about half the cost. And it's not as if it's because they have nuns and priests teaching, because uh, they mostly have uh, lay people now that are doing the teaching. And lay just people more usually paid almost uh, half as much, no more, no more than half as much as people in the public school system. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely And not right. trained in schools of education either. That's right. Well, that's one of the themes of our book because uh, they do use rewards. And uh, uh, sometimes they, one of the big rewards, of course, in, among uh, Jews, Protestants, and Catholic is, uh, you know, eventually uh, that you'll get to heaven if you <laughs> do your arithmetic correctly. <laughs> the whole point of your book is that rewards to students, to teachers, even to institutions is the key to increasing uh, educational attainment. Yes. In fact, I didn't even think of this until after the book, but you could say that uh, the use of rewards is almost like an argument for why it's important to be rational because a rational person does acts that increase their well-being, and and we can – one specific – form of well-being is rewards. And so, and not only is this important in uh, schooling, and we have a lot of evidence for that in our book, but in our society, people who do better generally get paid more, and not just in getting a job, but they get bonuses, they get raises, they get prestige, promotions, and things of that nature. So if the schools don't provide rewards, they don't uh, provide a good grounding for later work. But now I must remind you of, uh, well, to begin with, of an old film title. It was simply Alfie. But the theme of that that particular wonderful comedic film with Michael Caine as Alfie 
was What's It All About, Alfie? Uh, that was the song, actually, that uh, filled that film as the theme. And I speak of Alfie because in mind is not Michael Caine as Alfie, a sort of a runabout <clears throat> and uh, sociopathic a Cockney fellow in England, but rather we've got an Alfie in this very uh, concern, in this very realm of discourse. His name is Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, and he's one of many, but he's been a spokesman for them, and he's been a, a writer of many books, all of which argue, as do modern educationists generally, that we must maintain what I would label equalitism in schools, that to uh, reward any particular kid over another kid is to tell him that he's somehow superior, and that runs against the basic standard of political correctness, which is the key uh, to the maintenance of ultimate, purest democratic value. Therefore, our schools must not differentiate between those of higher and lower performance. I think that's an excellent summary of what Elfie Cohn says, and you're right. He has done a whole series of books, um, and they all just attack the use of rewards and incentives in K-12 education. He feels it's entirely inappropriate to pay kids, for example, for good scores or to read books or to give them script or even to grade their papers um, or in so, kindergarten or first grade to give them gold stars? To give them gold stars uh, or to let them put a pin on or to put their name up on the chalkboard. I mean, he goes through everything that you and I experienced growing up. And I think uh, it's a generalization. Anybody over the age of 40, I could say, any of those rewards that you got growing up in school are now considered uh, in bad taste, bad manners, and not egalitarian enough. And so he's campaigning to get teachers to take them out of their classrooms. Reading your book evoked a memory in me, <clears throat> which I've never shared with any of my audiences on any radio program. Or Listen any carefully now. This is a special moment. <laughs> it's a story. It's a story from my life, truly. Okay. Uh, I was a junior in high school, the high school being New Utrecht High School in Brooklyn, when people came around, probably from NYU, and admitted, were administering across all the public school system of New York City at that time, a test on a verbal competence and verbal facility and, and in linguistic capability or what have you. I took the test together with all my classmates in one particular classroom, and we were told it's being given all over the city. Two months later, in that same classroom, it was the English class in my junior year at high school, two fellows come in and talk to Zach Serwer, who was running... Uh, the class, the teacher, and and he's, they talk with him and then he says, should we tell? He says to them, well, should we tell him? And they say, yes, yeah. all right, let's do that. And then Zach Serwer hands it over to the young fellow who's a graduate student or something from NYU who says, well, you all took that test, you remember it. We've now compiled the scores for all of the city and the highest score was from a member of this class. Everyone's startled. And then they announced that it was, forgive me for telling it, it sounds very vague even a thousand years later, it was Milton Rosenberg. Oh, be darned. That knocked me out. I was not particularly well-known for being a brilliant student. I was busy with a few things. Uh, my interest was largely in track, where I always <laughs> did very poorly in the pole vaulting, which was my real ambition. And I was a reporter on the student newspaper. And I was an indifferent student. But uh, when I was interested, I did pretty well. Otherwise, I was doing rather poorly in the German course, as I remember it. Uh, but 
my fellow students were excited by this or pleased by it, I was transported to a different level of existence. I learned more about it from Zach Server, who was a friendly and competent teacher, and I really had scored very, very well uh, in sort of use of language and knowledge of literature or knowledge of whatever it was. Uh, in fact, those same guys said, in presenting it to the class, I had scored higher than uh, uh, graduate students uh, in the same sample <laughs> on the same test. Uh, and that's a lovely anecdote. I wish we would have had it well, in the book. But the consequence of the anecdote was, and this is my real point, of course, that I'm coming to, pardon my narcissistic self-indulgence as an old man remembering a great reward of his adolescence, but the consequence was to transform me in terms of educational aspirations. Sure, I knew I was going to go to college, but I had no great interest in it. Now I became motivated. I became, in the next year, the editor-in-chief of the student newspaper because I started writing furiously and better than I had before. And I strutted around as that famous Milt Rosenberg, even though a girl <laughs> at the same high school later on scored, supposedly was lost, she had scored even higher than I had. In the, but the Utrecht High School did very well on all of that. I think my becoming an academic and going after a PhD and, and treasuring intellectual life such as it is, or such as I had access to it, was inf seriously influenced by that event. I, I believe it. And I think we need to talk about flawed tests because clearly this is an example of a flawed test. That no, I did so well on this. <laughs> <laughs> not, not all tests are good and they are getting better. And a lot of teachers are kind of bummed out or burned out over using tests because they had bad experiences in the past. And so tests that, that don't accurately capture what, what the students should be learning, that are difficult to... Um, grade, uh, and that there are long delays between when the grading is done and the student is informed. I mean, how long, how many months between? About two months you, between two the months? taking of the yeah, test. It's fairly quick. Yeah. But some of these big tests, yeah, very long delays. And so in situations like that, tests don't motivate and they don't provide teachers with good information that they can use in the classroom. Alfie Cohn was on the radio program I did uh, many, many years ago. I listened with interest, but not particularly susceptible to his argument. Somebody else who, would, who bothered me more and must bother you more, and I can't remember his name. You will remember it. Is an education professor, uh, or is he a psychologist at Harvard, who argues there is no such thing as mere intelligence. There are intelligences, plural, and you can't test uh, intellectual attainment or intellectual competence through mere paper and pencil tests. I was are, on that program with you. That was Howard Gardner. Gardner, of Yeah, the seven intelligences, he calls them. That? Well, it's it's true that there are different types of uh, abilities. It's just that he's twisted the meaning of intelligence to uh, talk about, let's say, spatial intelligence or various kinds. Mm -hmm. When usually we use the term intelligence, it it means uh, the capacity to do well in academics. And so, but I I think he's made a contribution in the sense because. You, you can think about artistic intelligence or musical intelligence, and we, we should not merely recognize academic uh, accomplishment. I mean, that's one thing, but it's certainly not everything in life. But academic attainment and academic skills and uh, facility with the language and acquisition of relevant cultural information and historical information and an ability to read a lot and ingest what you read and live with it, that's what you're interested in. Yes, uh, that's the and I would mathematical say, skills that's the, and so on. 
that's the major theme of the book, and we have a huge uh, emphasis on that, but it's not to exclude, let's say, accomplishment in athletics or art yeah. or music. Uh, but kinesthetic and, intelligence, which was one of Gardner's types, yes. had to do with dancing <laughs> and sports and so on, uh, isn't mm-hmm. particularly uh, elevated by classic, by standard uh, school Measures. curricula. No, it's so. not. And in fact, there's even some rethinking. I have to, I've always uh, emphasized for the half century I've been involved with uh, academic uh, instruction, how important a- academics are per se. But these days, uh, it, uh, there are people who have more, a heavier emphasis on vocational training and they get jobs because they have specific skills. And I don't want to, we don't exclude that from the book. And then we even mention, for example, how rewards can be so terribly important in teamwork and athletics and things of that nature. So uh, we're not the ones to say, like Common Core, you know, you have to learn A, B, C, and D. But rather we're saying if you want to learn things, here's you need to use rewards in order to accomplish it efficiently. I think We've just done in this series. It, has not, it will be played perhaps before this conversation we're having now. Uh, a uh, uh, a discussion of the Common Core argument. Yes. Who's for it and who's against it? Mm-hmm. There's been a book published with a pro and a con by two relevant uh, persons. Uh, the uh, the con is uh, the fellow who runs the National Association of Scholars, and the pro is uh, uh, a conservative fellow, but he's for it uh, mm-hmm. from New York. It's uh, in a book published by Encounter Books. Uh, but uh, rather than pick up on that argument, though we may well return to it, let's first clarify what you really mean by rewards. You mean more than gold stars, and more than that's a good performance, George. Well, I, or that's a good essay, George. <laughs> I think there's there's a whole range of rewards. Um, so we look at rewards in the in the home before a child goes to school or after he comes back from school. We look at it in classrooms. We look at it with teachers. And we look at it with school administrators. So there are different types of reward systems and incentives that can be set up in each of those different environments that can influence behavior and result in the goals or achieving the goals that we're seeking to one achieve. One of my other memories, and this is a very early one, maybe at the age of two or thereabouts for all I know, it's one of the first memories. Psychologists dig into early memory, among other things, was the time that my father bragged to his brother, my Uncle Ben, that I had learned to tie my own shoelaces. <laughs> at the I was probably two. about two years old at the time. <laughs> Is that a, Was that an important reward? It probably. It's here by memory. It, yeah, it, it was important to you to be respected and, and appreciated by the adults in your yeah. life and to hear yeah. your father bragging about you to one of his brothers. I would think that's a great example of, yeah. of that. Um, but importantly, rewards, uh, rewards can fail. We know that, and that's kind of at the heart of guys like Elfie Cohn and others. They document cases where rewards and incentive systems don't work, and then they say, therefore, we shouldn't use rewards at all. Uh, so they're throwing out the baby with the bath. Well, bath what's water. evil about the use of rewards in the view of Elfie Cohn? Oh, he thinks it does lead to inequality. Yeah. He thinks that it extinguishes internal motivation. Uh-huh. That if you're doing something, if, if you're being paid a dollar to read that book, you're not going to appreciate that book or develop an internal motivation. To so in this Alfie Cohn and all of people like him, and there are many like him, and they're located in educationism, in the schools of education, mm-hmm. they are all, in some sense, and you deal with this in the book, Rousseauians. 
That's right. And Explain. the Platonists, for that matter, because Plato, in contrast to Aristotle, had you know the idea of uh, your soul and you you were given certain abilities and you they were fixed for life when there are certain types of people, whereas as Aristotle was of the view more that you could, with diligence, uh, improve yourself. And, uh, of course, John Dewey, an American educator, although he may not have been quite like Alfie Cohn, did lead the idea that you should pursue what you want to do rather than learning what is prescribed. Intrinsicism versus extrinsicism. That's right, yeah. Is fully represented in Plato in uh, the dialogue of the Mino. Yes. In which the slave boy is demonstrated to intrinsically have knowledge of mathematics. It can Uh be elicited from him. Yes. And so uh, it, it, it's more of a genetic or a argument, whereas, uh, you know, we, I think that one of the themes of our book is that uh, uh, children can learn under the proper circumstances, and that means that they are rewarded for accomplishments. And, of course, as uh, Joe emphasized, that may depend on their age, but it may depend on a lot of other things. Now, you've got friends who belong to a particular movement or a particular sector of the academic culture. Uh, it is commonly called educationism. The references to schools of education are American educationists different from other educationists elsewhere in the world with regard to their views on these matters. Yes, I think they've been, as uh, Joe has suggested, I think they've been. American educators have been very strongly uh, influenced by that long tradition of Platonism. Rousseau, uh, John Dewey, uh, William Hurd. Kilpatrick was another, and uh, you find this uh, very, very strongly represented in American schools of education and in, uh, in, let's say, in Europe and Asia. They don't even have – in many cases, they don't have schools of education. They concentrate on the subject matter. Where did we go? Is that having gone astray or is that simply an alternative route as worth close consideration as – it's uh well i think we've it's gone, opponents i think we've gone astray yeah and i think a lot of a lot of what you hear as informed debate about <laughs> incentives and rewards is actually just just poor research and superficial research parading as as cover i suppose for an ideology um, i think a lot of these ideologues who have been pushing this uh, egalitarianism in education schools um are doing it for ideological reasons. And so when they look at psychology, they're going to claim that they can find in the psychological literature evidence of extrinsic extrinsic rewards extinguishing intrinsic rewards. Um, and you know, when you look at the actual documentation and the research, you find that those studies are very small and likely to be flawed and not persuasive at all. Now, you are hinting at what you've just said, Joe Bast, that— uh there is a political dimensionality to all of this. And by politics, one means that long dimension, which is commonly defined as left versus right, or left at one end, right at the other. What's that connection? I, I think the left has very deliberately entered schools of education and uh, K-12 education with that agenda, with the understanding that if they can control the teaching of teachers, that they can turn an entire generation in the direction of their egalitarian vision. So I think it's an ideological campaign masquerading as psychology or economics. But the bottom line is, um, you know, they're doing this for uh, for reasons of control and a vision of how the world should work. So egalitarian or pseudo-egalitarian educationism, when conveyed to teachers, 
will ultimately have the effect, it is hoped, at least by those professors of education, will have the ultimate effect of uh, turning students in the liberal, in the leftish direction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how how so. would that work? What would the logic of that be? Well, I think uh, you were influenced by our parents and we're influenced by our teachers. And if uh, the teachers have this ideology and the, the kids have it for 12 full years and they get even more of it, as you know, Milt, in college, uh, then it's very difficult for them to get around it later in life. Although many do, they become more serious about politics and economics. Yeah, but and so why on. would uh, insistence upon uh, intrinsic rather than extrinsic reward necessarily uh, tilt somebody leftwards rather than rightwards? Well, uh, one thing is that uh, it, it frankly makes them ignorant. <laughs> they don't learn as much, and so they're susceptible ah. to others uh, influencing them in ways that are not constructive, as Joe was suggesting. Yeah, there's a natural selection process in the education field. We've actually kind of had this sort of conversation before. People who are drawn to become teachers um, tend to be internally motivated. They're certainly not doing it for the money, or at least they didn't used to do it just for the money. So you're getting people who typically come right out of school and become teachers. They have very little experience in the commercial world. Um, they uh, And they're not likely to sympathize with people who are motivated by money. And they look around them. Everybody's being paid the same. The teacher's contract ensures that teachers all get the same amount, no matter how good they are or bad they are. So they live in this kind of bubble of egalitarianism. Uh, where high achievement is not recognized and poor achievement is not punished, where rewards tend not to exist in their world, and so they try to take it out of their classroom as well. I don't think the left has a good vision of how that world would truly work, which is kind of what you're asking. How does how, so, so, you're educu- so you're miseducating generations of kids so that they're not prepared to go out and really achieve and compete with one another in order to bring out the best that they have. So how do you imagine that's going to be a better world for the rest of us? Um, Isn't it going to result in a lot of slackers and part-time workers and people who don't aspire and people who who haven't read decent literature so they don't know what kind of values they should be really uh, trying to attain or or fulfill? Um, I don't think the left has an answer for that. I started my academic career at Yale. I was lucky and got an assistant professorship at Yale right after I got my doctorate. Uh, I knew a fair number of people in the English department at Yale. And there was a remedial course uh, to kind of bring uh, kids who weren't quite performing at proper level up to snuff with regard to English uh, writing, I guess, Uh, and perhaps even reading comprehension. But uh, as I was told at the time, only one out of about 50 kids was considered uh, possibly needing such uh, treatment. One out of 50. One out of 50. And these were people admitted to Yale, which uh, would be a fairly elect bunch. Uh, At the University of Chicago, which also ranks, if not uh, in the top three universities of the country, in the top 10 and has always uh, since uh, organized by William Rainey Harper, famous professor from Yale, uh, with Rockefeller money in the 1890s, but at the University of Chicago, when I came to it uh, and got to know some people, I got to know the man who ran the remedial operation in English, 
uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, one out of five kids was deemed requiring some kind of remedial help uh, in uh, uh, reading or in writing or both. Yes, and in some universities, you uh, you have typically the whole class is taking high school level courses in preparation for real college work, and so uh, it's you you were uh, at a time that you went to college. Uh, it was much more elite and selective, but we have many more students that are going to college these days. But not only are there many more of them, but there are many more that are ill prepared for college work. And uh, in my opinion, this is uh, remediable. Uh, there's a wonderful, uh, we describe in the book, uh, the work of Angela Duckworth uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, who has uh, su- strongly suggested on the basis of the extensive research that she has done, the importance of a four-letter word, grit. And what she has argued strongly is that it isn't so much intelligence uh, that takes you a long way, but it's the capacity to persevere through difficulty. And she's illustrated this by people uh, who are students, I should say, that are at the United States Military Academy at uh, uh, West Point, uh, champion uh, of spelling bee in the national championships and the Ivy League schools, and uh, the her estimates are that grit is twice as important as uh, intelligence. So, and this is also obviously important in many walks of life after school, because even if you didn't have a brilliant academic record, uh, and, and you know, in order to succeed a lot in academia, at least as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, uh, you're essentially passing courses and doing things that people ask you to do, um, and you can do it rapidly. But even if you start a job, you can learn something. It might take you twice as much time, but after you've done that in a month, a lot of jobs can be learned in a few months. People with grit can be very, very successful in what they do. I like the distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic, and I see the importance of extrinsic factors in uh, rewarding people and... and, uh, uh, magnifying motivation to do still more serious or more applied and uh, more committed work and acquiring more knowledge and more skill. But what about those who don't get the extrinsic reward? Isn't it the case that, uh, could it not be argued that it is the case, that those kids who don't perform all that well are in a way punished and deflated and uh, hampered by not receiving the extrinsic rewards that the better-performing kids do. Uh, Thus, the concern with no child left behind rears its head. Well, anytime you have competition for rewards, you're going to have winners and losers. Exactly. And it's essential. So what happens to the losers? Well, you create alternative avenues for them and different ways that they can achieve uh, success and self-esteem. What... You know, I think we've we've erred so far in the other direction recently. I mean, I know at the Heartland Institute when we get people coming in, interns or new employees, their self-esteem is off the map. Um, They're convinced that they're good writers. They're convinced that they know all of this stuff, and you ask them to write something, and they can't write a paragraph. Um, But they've never been told that they're not good at writing. Uh, They they got A's in English composition, 
Um, and yet, uh, you know, it's like these kids in uh, Taekwondo with all their trophies. And a lot of these trophies are just for showing up. They're called participation trophies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we live in a world where, yeah, we're worried about, well, well how about the kids who don't get the rewards? Uh, well, let's just give them all awards. Let's not keep track to the score in our in our games or, or everybody gets a trophy no matter how they achieve. So I think the alternative to that is not to just – you know, uh, say you win and you lose and losers are unpopular and, and to be shunned, but you find alternative things for the kids who don't succeed in that activity to try and be able to compete and succeed and get recognition in a different activity. But alternative activities or alternative routes suggests a track system and suggests that some are given uh, held in high expectation with regard to future intellectual attainment and go to the better schools and get the higher-paying jobs, and others are tracked to uh, lesser levels. If it isn't alphas uh, versus uh, deltas, what is it? Well, uh, tracking is still very, very prevalent in American high schools, and it's justified because— it's uh, very. If you have a, a class that is very is variegated in their abilities, uh, the reasonable teacher might pace the instruction toward the middle student, but the higher students already know it, and the lower students are yet incapable of learning it. So tracking makes a lot of good sense, and uh, it may it may it means that the instruction is suited for the level of the student. And so, especially in mathematics, for example, there's a lot of tracking. And it's uh, fully justified because some students are capable of uh, differential equations and and, uh, calculus and others are going to have to struggle with consumer math. I don't know why reading your book has evoked memories from (laughs) high school days, (laughs) but I offer you another. Another thing I remembered, not that it was out of my unconscious, but I hadn't thought about it in many years. I had a good friend at New York High School. In fact, he was also uh, a buddy living on the same street uh, in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, uh, who was told after some, uh, after failing some course or doing poorly in it, was told by the teacher, and this was sort of reinforced by some counselor, that, well, probably uh, he should not aspire to go to college. He should go to some technical training school and learn a handicraft, maybe uh, something in electronics or maybe auto mechanic or something. That broke the, he came home with it, that broke the heart of his mother. Hmm. It was a good Jewish mother from a long time ago. Uh, and uh, his father was not merely uh, affected and hurt by that, but was, inf- was infuriated and went to the school and argued with people. Uh, the, to make a quick, uh, uh, a quick routine out of that, this, what could be a long and tedious story, that man became a famous neurosurgeon <laughs> <laughs> because his parents protested that he was not getting extrinsic rewards. And in fact, he was being told, you're not really our kind of material. That, and that somehow led to a, a new motivational path, and he went to medical school and was a man of major attainment. You know, competition, choice, yeah, uh, the, the threat of withdrawing rewards. I mean, the, yeah, different people respond differently to these things. But tell you what, while you're recalling an anecdote, let me recall one. Please do. Well. All right. First grade either first grade or second grade, Sister Agatha at Holy Name of Jesus Elementary School uh, taught me how to read and write. Sister Agatha gave me, as a gift, Graham's Unrivaled Atlas. 
I think it was 1932 or something. It's an old book that they were cycling out of the library. Rather than throw it away, she gives it to me. Now, I'm this little guy. This book is big and heavy. And I remember taking it home. I was never so proud in my life, maybe mm-hmm. since, as being able to come into the house with that book and say, look what Sister Agatha gave me. And I would spend hours and hours on the floor paging through this book, looking at the pictures of all the presidents and continents and the history of the Great War was in there, and it was fascinating stuff. I think that probably did more to make me imagine that I could be an intellectual Uh, at the age of seven or something. I was discovering that there was this world of of ideas and and language and literature uh, that other kids weren't even aware of at that point. And that gift, that reward probably for washing the chalkboards after class or something, put me on that whole path. And what happened to you in later life was you went to the University of Chicago. You came out of it and you, and you founded a new think tank. You know, where I get to work with tremendous academics all day long. Like so, Herb yeah, Wolbert. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, talk about a fulfilling kind of life. So, But back to this book. Please. <laughs> so, yeah, so rewards, you know, for ideological reasons, I think, um, uh, schools of education don't teach teachers how to use rewards and actively discourage them from using it. And teachers are rewarded by their principals, by their colleagues, um, by politicians uh, for passing everybody, for not distinguishing great from mediocre. And as a result, uh, the educational achievement of kids in the United States is flagging. And this is especially uh-huh. hurtful, I think, to low-income kids and minority kids uh, because you know maybe the kids with uh, overly attentive Jewish parents are going to get by anyway. They're going to get that education and stimulus and be pushed to go on to college. But there's yeah, 80% of the kids don't have parents like that. They're the ones who are hurt by this. You're talking, among other things, about a phenomenon which is commonly identified as grade inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens, uh, I suppose, in elementary and secondary schools. The fact is it now happens as well, as Herb Wahlberg well knows, uh, in universities. It happens in all of higher education. That's right, and uh, we now have something like 4,000 institutions of higher education, colleges, and universities in the United States, and uh, they're competing for students. And if they give Mm -hmm. all A's, that means that the students have a better chance of getting a better job or getting into graduate school. So there's a very strong tendency to give all A's and B's. I remember when I used to teach even at Harvard, they would rarely give a C, and despite the fact that... uh, you know, they used to say quite often at Harvard, the difficult problem at Harvard is to get in, not to pass courses. And so <laughs> a lot of them had worked very, very hard their whole lives. And then just when they went to school, they had a lot of fun. Well, are we in, in this truly different from other comparable nations when, when one looks at their school systems? Well, it's true do they, that Do in they the United handle States, this differently in France or in England? Well, we have uh, one thing that is distinctive about American higher education is we have far, far more students in higher education that com- that go to college and to complete yeah. college and that go to graduate school, whereas it's relative by our standards, it's relatively rare in France or Japan uh, or some of the other countries. But uh, there is some tendency 
to, because of entrance examinations, which are very important to get in to the very best schools in the United States, but that's even more true, for example, in Japan, where I've done a number of studies. And uh, so once you get in, you're set for life. You have guaranteed uh, marital partners, guaranteed getting into a good uh, corporation or becoming a high government official. And so uh, it varies a lot uh, on depending on what uh, – stage of the education process you are. Well, where would you want to begin with regard to basic changes in how we do education? Where are the main problems? Uh, You've talked about a general attitude which you think uh, limits our educational attainment, but there are areas of particular concern and areas where you would be less immediately uh, desiring to intrude. What really needs fixing quickly? Well, one thing that Joe and I have <clears throat> have very strong agreement about, and we've written a number of books and edited books on the same subject, is privatization of education. Generally speaking, parochial schools and independent schools, because they have to compete with one another, uh, provide a superior education at a lower cost. Now, I don't mean every single one. And charter schools go halfway because they are publicly funded, but they're privately run. But I think what we need is more, just as we have competition in most sectors of American society, we need more competition, which would lead to to parents becoming, right now, a typical parent has to send their child, unless they want to pay for a parochial or an independent school, they have to send their child to a particular public school, and there's very little incentive for the public school to please the parent. I mean, it's somewhat incidental. They have to be responsive to what the government wants and what the school wants, not to what the parent wants. Do we have evidence um, of a metric variety? We have quantitative evidence that kids learn more and become more motivated to learn in private schools or, for that matter, in charter schools. There's recent research that's been reported. At least I've seen newspaper accounts of that research. I don't know the detailed real work on it. That charter schools, it, it now turns out, uh, aren't performing any better in terms of their the educational attainment of their students. Well, some do and some others. don't. Uh, on in gen- there have been a whole bunch of different studies. And actually, I did a book for the Cato Institute, and. Uh, on average, charter schools do a bit better than public schools, but there's no question about private schools doing better. Both parochial schools and independent schools uh, on objective examinations uh, do better. Well, do they, for example, a, a major objective examination is the one you do towards the end of high school as you're preparing for college. Uh, it's uh, the uh, SATs the and SATs. Yeah. Do we have differences at SAT? Yes. Uh, in SAT yes. data? Yes, and even more, and SATs classically have been a so-called ability test, but an even more persuasive one is the ACT, the American College Test, uh-huh. which tests them specifically on mathematics, English, and school subjects. And clearly, um, when you, you talk about achievement as opposed to ability, uh, the private schools do better. And it's an objective test as well. Now, what you've said there, what is implied, and you better make it uh, uh, explicit rather than implicit, is that in those private schools, uh, reward is more commonly and effectively used than in the public schools. Yes, and that's the argument in in several ways. And one of the most important ways is if you have a uh, poor charter school or a bad parochial school or a miserable independent school, nobody will go there and you're going to close, whereas that isn't applicable 
to the uh, public schools. It goes on and on and on. And so number one is competition among schools. But in addition to that, uh, we think that uh, because the people in private and parochial schools have not gone through schools of education typically, they're uh, more accepting or even enthusiastic about using rewards and working closely with the parents to make sure that academic accomplishment is rewarded at home and in school. Something we haven't mentioned in this conversation, but is very relevant in the city where the three of us work, namely Chicago, and is relevant in many other educational systems in other major American cities, is the tragedy and uh, the deep dysfunctionality of, I'll call them directly what we used to call them, ghetto schools. That is, schools for black kids in the so-called inner city, Mm -hmm. uh, where Performance levels are low, where uh, graduation uh, statistics are very unfavorable, where teachers are more disgruntled and possibly not as adequate as teachers, et cetera, et cetera. What does all of that we've been talking about so far, how does all of that bear upon the dilemma, we can call it that at least, or would you want to call it the tragedy mm-hmm. of the inner city school? Well, first of all, I think it is a tremendous problem. The gap in achievement uh, based on income and on race in the United States is huge. Um, and it shrunk only just a little bit under uh, let no child, uh, no child left behind. It actually, we made some progress uh, toward it under that program. Um, and now it's starting to grow again. Um, and it's a real tragedy because we're essentially cutting the bottom rungs off the ladder of of success for generation after generation of these kids. Um, these schools uh, are bad schools, are, are failing schools, not because we don't spend enough. We're spending 15000 20000 Washington, D.C. Per 20, student. Per student. Yeah. Washington, D.C., $25,000 per year per student. And it's, a, it's one of the worst school systems in the entire country. Uh, you've got teachers who are burned out, who can't be fired, who can't be disciplined, we're just waiting for their pensions. You've got huge pension benefits that are essentially bankrupting these systems. So you've got three, four, five retired teachers for every teacher who is working. I mean, so you just plow money into retirement benefits uh, for people who aren't even in the classrooms. The United States has a higher percentage of, of school employees who are not in the classroom than any other country in the world. Over 50% of public school employees aren't teachers in the classroom. They're, they're everything else. They're counselors and administrators and bureaucrats and purchasing agents and recreation managers and you name it, but they're not teaching in the classroom. So all of these problems with, I think, perverse incentives and, and bad institutional design are magnified in the inner city because these kids and these parents don't have any choices. They can't escape it. Anybody who can escape is left. And so you're left with parents who are completely powerless and then you get a system that's bad and just gets worse and worse over time. What does all of that have to do with the matter that you focused upon directly in your book, Rewards? I haven't given its mm-hmm. title often enough. Because school choice solves that problem. Because these schools are so bad because they don't have to compete for parents and for students and for money. If you made them compete, and, and we know this works because we've seen the Catholic schools in inner cities. We've seen the charter schools, even magnet schools. When schools have to compete for kids, they realize that they can't tolerate 
that math teacher who year after year after year is completely incompetent and is unable to get those fourth graders to understand anything about math. So you push the kids on to fifth grade, and the poor fifth grade teachers all know that that teacher isn't doing the job. And they would tolerate that so long as there's no competition and choice. But if there was competition and choice and they started to lose students and lose funding because that fourth grade math teacher was incompetent, they would fire that teacher, bring in better people, reward the good teachers. But in public school systems, you can't easily fire teachers. Because rewards are banned at the teacher level as well. Yeah, they, you, can't, you can't discriminate among teachers. You can't uh, pay math teachers more than you pay English teachers, even though there's a shortage of math teachers. Um, poor teachers are paid just as much as uh, good teachers. So, and that, that is strictly the product of an industry that doesn't have to allow competition and choice. We used to see this in the railroads. Remember the old stories about railroads before they were deregulated, where you had feather bedding, where you had like four guys who were supposed to be in charge of putting coal into the, into the engine, but it's a diesel engine now. But you still had these fire tenders um, because the unions had job descriptions and Having a, a fireman on the train was part of the, the union contract. So you had thousands and thousands of railroad workers who did absolutely nothing, and it made the whole industry inefficient. So when it was finally deregulated and they had to compete, all those jobs started to to get eliminated and the systems became massively more efficient. Joe Bast, guide, sir, I begin to discover something I hadn't realized before. You are if not totally anti-union. You're by no means pro-union. I'm not you seem a, in some ways to be uh, a conservative. <laughs> I've been accused of that, uh, but I'm not anti-union. I mean, if guys want to form a union, more power to them. And if there's freedom of entry and exit and competition and choice, unions can do a really good job. One of my experiences at the University of Chicago, I was a janitor at the University of Chicago, uh, and one thing that happened routinely is they would find a janitor drunk in the morning sleeping in his closet, and it would be 9 o'clock, and he hadn't done his work. Uh, we started at 6 in the morning or even 5 in the morning. I forget. And so they would come around to my floor. We each had a floor, and they would say, Joe, you got to do the fifth floor because Bill is drunk in his closet again. And so I would end up having to do everybody else's work. You know, I was the youngest and fastest of the janitors. And so I'd, I'd be doing all this work for other people. And the union would always defend these guys. It would defend them up and down, back and forth. Um, so my experience, my firsthand experience with unions wasn't very good. I think they, they do tend to defend incompetence and make it diffi more difficult for management to do its job. Of course, some of this is uh, hypothetical these days because I think it's something like 8% of the private workforce is unionized, whereas uh, years ago it was something like 80 percent, whereas in the public sector, which tends to be the less efficient sector, you know, the teachers' unions, for example, it's almost uniform in big cities for teachers to be in unions. Yep, that's right. You know, something I did a lot uh, in, well, uh, in my last 10 years or so as a full-time university professor uh, was to give a cultural literacy exam uh, to my students. I usually did it in my largest class, whatever that was. It was typically the uh, social psychology course with 80 or 90 kids in it. And on the last day, I pulled a, uh, uh, 
a, an E.D. Hirsch routine on them, and I gave them a simple 10-item uh, quiz, asked them to answer these 10 questions, and then told them the proper answers to each of the 10. The questions were various. They were all informational. E.D. Hirsch's basic argument, as you too well know, and probably many of our listeners do, is that you can't really make, make it in the world unless you share knowledge about all the common institutions and the history and the language and so on, uh, which uh, holds a society together. So one of my questions was, what are the dates of the American Civil War? Another was, uh, what is the capital of Finland? Yet another was, uh, uh, name uh, three works, name three British authors of the 19th century, and so on. And uh, yet another, the second literary one, was name two novels by Saul Bellow. Uh, ten items at all. There were others of similar order. Uh, one, uh, yet another, was uh, who composed the opera Tosca. Uh, in general, on this cultural literacy exam, given uh, usually to students uh, who were uh, juniors, some sophomores, juniors, seniors, but it was an undergraduate course, uh, the score was about one out of ten, uh, correct, fully correctly answered. On the Civil War, one out of 20 kids could identify the decade uh, <laughs> where the Civil War occurred. Uh, when I uh, then reported these findings, not to the students who are just given them, but rather in talks I gave here or there, uh, uh, people were usually quite indignant and said, but that's knowledge uh, that's important to you, but it's not necessarily important to your students. And they can get that knowledge instantly if they just go to their, if they just Google, Google it or go look for it. Uh, why why do you have to store all of that stuff so long as you know how to find it when you need it? Um, is that relevant to why you and I, the two of you and I perhaps, have a certain attitude towards present education which is not shared by our younger colleagues? Well, we three have something in common, and that is the University of Chicago, which is probably one of the most academic places in the world. And uh, the undergraduate program there— Well, I never there. went to the University of Chicago. I know, but you taught there for some years. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it, it, it was—I it, think they were very insistent for the undergraduates to have a general knowledge of culture, and it would be very fitting— for them to, uh, uh, and, and it's even surprising that University of Chicago students didn't know these things, but that's the way it is. Now, it may not be all that hurtful uh, for some people because they tend to be highly specialized. And if you mm -hmm. went into certain subjects... Why would a chemist need to know? Yes, they, who they was learn the, what they need Who was need the king executed in the French Revolution? That was another one of the items I used. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, it is good to have uh, you know general knowledge, but it's even more important for work and things like that. Um, of course, too, we want to have educated uh, citizens for voting, so you can make a very strong case for knowing American history and politics and things of that nature. And, of course, uh, mastery of reading and literature can be important in a whole bunch of different fields. But, uh, you know, we live in a free society, and people are free to concentrate on what they wish. Is it, in fact, the case that, despite all concerns with improving education, that uh, people grow in essence, less educated, less competent, less uh, enriched with uh, cultural heritage conveyed through educational systems, that we are in a transformational age in which uh, the nature of human 
intellectual competence is getting redefined. Uh, and the uh, maybe the goals of humanist education no longer are being served, no longer can be served. I think it's a profound question, and what's most interesting about it is this question has been answered or asked and answered over and over again for many, many years. Um, Richard Weaver, you might remember um, Ideas Have Consequences, several other books. I was reading one of his other books, and I'm not going to—I was trying to think of the title of it just now. But he wrote in that book that every generation loses so much knowledge. And I can't—he wrote, I can't hold a candle to to the last generation of writers. I I can't even read their books and truly understand what they're saying. That's how dim I am. And I'm reading his book, and he's got French and Latin footnotes in this book. (laughs) I can't translate his footnotes. And I'm thinking, wow, I can't understand Richard Weaver. And Richard Weaver couldn't understand the generation before him. And I'm complaining about the next generation of people that I'm trying to hire and trying to train who have never heard of Milton Friedman and and Frederick Hayek. And I say, "How, how can you possibly think you're a conservative or a libertarian or an economist or a political scientist and not have read any of their work. Um, every generation seems to lose 90% of the knowledge of the generation before it. And yet, uh, we live in a highly advanced society where, uh, I mean, knowledge seems to be exploding. The, the discoveries in biotechnology and, and technology, the, the equipment on this desk that wouldn't have been here 10 years ago, I mean, it is astonishing the progress that's apparent all around us, and it's the result of intellect. I mean, there are geniuses, and that genius is, is spreading. So, so the nature of what constitutes intelligence and a well-formed person is changing, has always been changing. And it's a challenge to, to older people to recognize what's, what's new as well as what's old, what can be lost and what should be held on to. You know, I think I owe you to an apology. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I've overindulged my own interests and uh, and burdened you with my own stories. We haven't focused closely enough on the rich detail of your new book, Rewards, How to Use Rewards to Help Children Learn and Why Teachers Don't Use Them Well. That by Herbert J. Wahlberg and Joseph L. Bass. But let's take the last few minutes that we've got and uh, respond. You, I ask you to respond simply to this who are you writing this book for? What do you want them to learn? Why do you advise them to read it? Well, I think, uh, broadly speaking, we're addressing parents and uh, educators, uh, but we're also the Heartland Institute, of which I chair the board and Joe is the president. Uh, our major audience is state legislators, but also local officials, uh, governors, and even Congress, and the educated public that's interested in policy. And so I think that audience is also maybe the the most important audience. But we want to argue that uh, we can, number one, that we're doing very badly in in public education in the United States, that we can do much better, that we need to use rewards. And one of the best ways to use, to uh, employ rewards more extensively and more effectively is through the privatization of education, particularly the charters go, go halfway um, but we're much more in favor of parochial schools, independent schools, uh, and vouchers. So th- that would be you know, the main argument of our book, and that's why we've selected the audiences that I just mentioned. So says Herbert Wolberg and Joe Bast. 
I would add that, uh, yeah, I think we want we want to alert parents and policymakers to how schools today don't operate the way that they did when we grew up. I think we all assume that there's still stars and grades and rewards and recognition going on, and there isn't. It's really been banned from a lot of these classrooms, and I think parents would be shocked to know what these teachers are being told and the kind of uh, methodologies that are being used in schools today. To change that, you can't just walk into the classroom and tell the teacher, I want you to start giving gold stars or grades. Um, The teacher won't do it. And so you'll pack back up and say, why is why don't teachers listen to parents? Well, because they don't have to, because the schools don't compete. This gets back to school choice and vouchers or tax credits would encourage that competition. The teacher doesn't get paid more if he or she does a better job. So she's not incentivized to listen to you or to up her game. Um, she's incentivized to try to do as little as possible to to be paid as much as possible. So it all comes back to rewards and incentives, how they've been banned from the classroom, how they created a school system that's not productive and not efficient. And if we're going to compete as a country and if we're going to ensure that the next generation has the same kind of opportunities that we have, we got to fix the schools. And the way to do that is with rewards and incentives. And that then is the final word. Uh, I'm delighted by uh, the new book, very impressed by it and delighted that we had the opportunity to discuss it tonight with Herbert Wahlberg and Joe Bast. Again, the title, Rewards, and the publishers are Heartlands Institute itself. The book is available wherever they sell real books and, of course, must be available in many ways on the Internet. That's right. Amazon as well as Heartland's website at heartland.org. And with that, we come to a close. Thanks very much for joining us. This was great, Milt.